Welcome to Kashras on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashras Magazine. And tonight's show is going to prove very interesting for everybody listening, for we're going to be discussing about Purim and some issues about Purim first, and then we'll go through a little bit about Purim, and then we'll go into the few of the topics that we have put aside for today. Let me start by just giving you a little introduction. This Purim has to be different than Purims in the past. Unfortunately, last year, Purim was the introduction, the, the, the precursor, uh, maybe the cause of the widespread coronavirus. So uh, it, it's, it has, you know, it, Purim we were celebrating fully last year, but that caused uh, a lot of the spread among the most religious people because of the closeness that we have on Purim. In the course of this year, we've lost tremendous numbers of people, and many people have been extremely sick, even if they recovered. Some people have not fully recovered and suffered very, very severely and uh, still struggling. It's not a simple issue at all, even though most people sort of at this point say, we're past it. Of course, if you live in certain states, you're definitely not past it. Other states, you get the feeling Maybe there's some kind of security. But now, as we approached this year of Purim, there's been a, a lot of discussion about how we should be conducting ourselves. I want to read a little bit to you from Rabbi Emanuel Feldman, who used to be a Rav, and I live in Israel, he used to be a Rav for, for many, many years in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, a tremendous amount of care of hundreds of people, I think he made from an amazing uh, rabbi, extremely talented, and he has uh, a little piece, I'm, not, I'm only going to select a short thing from it, uh, he's talking about uh, his five questions, he calls himself a wandering Jew, you know, they used to talk about the wandering Jew, he calls himself a wandering Jew, he has five questions. He says it's not poor in Pesach, so he can ask five questions. Um, There's strong questions about a lot of interesting things. But then he came down to numbers four and five. He said, pious Jews often deride non-observant Jews for being selective as to which Torah mitzvahs practices they choose to observe and which mitzvahs they choose to ignore. But are not some of the pious occasionally guilty of similar selectivity when they ignore the many Torah and halachic directives to preserve life, etc., in order to attend mass gatherings and mass weddings in the thousands, not exactly a fringe group, in clear violation of COVID health standards, thus endangering themselves and others, creating scorn and anger against all observant Jews and provoking anti-Jewish antagonism in America. Just wondering. That's question number four. Number five, very serious. And finally, related to this, why is it that when a very pious Jew is seriously ill, God forbid, he will quite properly seek out the very best medical expertise and follow his advice to the letter. But in the throes of a pandemic with millions dying around the world 
and death tolls approaching 5,000 in Israel alone, when the very best medical expertise declares that mass gatherings, especially without masks, are mortal danger to self and to others. Why does the same pious Jew ignore the medical expertise and willfully participate in mass gatherings? Just wondering. That's Rabbi Emanuel Feldman. That's how he handled it. But closer to home, where I'm living now, is in, in Lakewood. It seems that the Rosh Yeshiva and the and Ling Rabban of Lakewood put out a press release. It's signed by everybody. I mean, it's, if, if, you were the big, if you were a big rabbi, you signed it. There's a whole bunch of names on it, from Malkiel Cutler and Rucha Ocean and David Shustel and Israel Sweet Newman and Rabbi Lieberman and, you know, Shmuel, Mayor Katz, Forby Forsheimer, everybody's here. Everybody in Lakewood is here. And they got Aaron, they have Rabbi Reich at the bottom here. Everybody's on this paper. And it all talks about what we're supposed to do. I'd like to read to you a little bit in the Hebrew, and then I'll give you a little bit in the English. The reason I'm reading the Hebrew is because they say it more in the Hebrew than they say it in the English. Uh, he says, gedolos. It's important for us to stay away from big gatherings. And not to be around the different uh, houses. In other words, people go collecting and they're standing in front of houses, a whole bunch of people standing there, and there's a woman dressed up and getting excited. Poor, you know. Let's soft tzedakah. Around there collecting money, and have a whole bunch of kids running around um, in costumes and with a limo, you know, the whole, the whole deal. Since we're not going to have some of that this year, so people should give money to tzedakahs and help the poor people. But yes, they're asking for you people not to go collecting and standing at the front door, not to have large masibos. One of the shuls were here that I, where I, I daven, they're going to have a, you know, I didn't say COVID minion, but he said they said they're going to have social distancing uh, separate from the regular mass minion. So there's going to be a mass minion with a a lot of people there, a lot of kids, a lot of adults, and there's going to be a sort of a breakaway that's having a, a smaller minion, hopefully with proper separation, etc. So that's sort of their combination, elu for elu. Everybody's dealing with it differently, but the Rabbanim signed on that we can't have this year as with all years. They asked you to learn part of the time. They asked you not to gather in big gatherings, and it's a challenge. And not to go collecting, or at least not to go collecting in groups and maybe to limit the collecting. I'm not sure exactly what they want, but they're, they're trying to do something in that regard. Let me read to you what they wrote in English, because it's a little bit easier for us to understand without darshaning the Hebrew. The Rosh Yeshiva and leading Rabban of Lakewood have released a Kol Kairi ahead of Purim with strict guidelines due to COVID-19. 
Beis Medjish Gavo announced that for the first time in 80 years, the yeshiva won't host their annual Purim Mesiba that attracts thousands. The announcement was made by Rav Aaron Cutler, CEO of BMG, in the Asbury Park Press. The letter from the Rabbanim was released in Lush and Kodesh, which I just alluded to, uh, with a second letter with a loose translation in English, which is posted below. Due to the current COVID-19 situation, the following is recommended for Purim. Broadly speaking, Purim should be celebrated with the same people you usually interact with. You're in with your bubble. This means there should, be not, there should not be large open mesibos, not large gatherings. Number two, the widespread practice of going around from home to home, especially by Bacharim to collect tzedakah, should be avoided this year. Who's saying this? the leading Rabbanim and Moshe Shiva of Lakewood. It goes without saying that this should not lead to any sort of lessening in the mitzvah of Elat Tornus Levyonim, or the supporting of the Torahs Mosdois, most of the Torah. Uh, however, every, I'm saying, every, everyone should set aside a time for Limit HaSeder over Purim, and be Mishazek in Torah and Tefillah on this day. By the way, you should know that it's it's a, it's a called Purim and Yom Kippur is called Yom Kippurim, Kippurim, and that they say that Yom Kippur is like Purim, but Purim is bigger, and the tefillahs that you do on Purim, especially when there's so much distraction, the tefillahs that you put into uh, on on Purim can to, can accomplish that which uh, we try to accomplish on Yom Kippur, maybe more. So that's the thing to think about when you're davening. Just little, add a little time, a little sincerity to it. It, it goes a long way. Purim is an amazing day for tefillah. Specifically, every shul, mesifta, and base medrash should have a seder for all their mispalim and all their or tamidim during the night of Purim. After the seder, they can make their own private masiba. Well, the shuls, they make a big masiba, but what can I tell you? What's called private, what's called public? This pre- presents an exceptional opportunity for the Tomchei Torah of Lakewood, especially during this takuf of uncertainty, when we call on all those, t- we, when we can use all those sechusim. They should make themselves available f- for those who want to try to reach them by telephone. So in other words, don't not give matanas of yonim and, and tzedakahs, etc., but try to do it over the phone. In this zechus, we should be zoicha to a speedy kiyom of nahapochu and see the Geula Shleim of Bekarov. I didn't mention it, but in one of the, uh, I think it's in the Kol Kare, right now I find it, it's going to give me an extra second, so I'm not going to look for it, but it says over there, I even remember what it says, it says that, ah, here I got to, I read it to you, I'll read you the Hebrew. Uh, again, we'll, we'll, we'll translate it, but I'm not going to go on to this too far. Ulam ledavonainu. In other words, unfortunately, beikvos haaliyah bemikrei choyle corona beirenu. The increase of corona in our city. That means Lakewood. The hemshech hagbolos v'hamem shalo al ha'is his as fuyos. In other words, it's going to be there's more and more nationally. Hamigbolos shemishavim al yidei his kashrus. The Ainabisha. And there's and the the, the impact that, that that comes from the physical contact and the closeness of people, the Ainabisha. 
and and he writes in parenthesis Vidailich Akima. Ainabisha is an iron horror. And the, what the saying is that then Goyim see us. So it's not a good deal. Vidailich Akima, and it's enough a hint to the wise, which means that we're supposed to realize that if we're conducting ourselves in a public way and they're here from the newspapers taking pictures and writing it up, and then the goyim see it and hear about it. Uh, okay, everybody understand what I'm saying. So that's hinted at in this letter that the Rabbanah put out. That is an issue. Now, the next thing I want to talk about, and this is really uh, important, we're going to talk about Purim this year, and the halachas of Purim. The biggest halacha everybody imagines is the one of the su'uda. When are we going to have the su'uda and how is that going to work? So let me take you back to a Friday Purim a few years ago. When the last time was, I don't remember. But if you look it up in uh, history, you'll find out when the last one was. And it could be, it was two years in a row, I believe. And uh, I'm going back then to the first one. There was a Friday Purim, and uh, they played itself out the way we're talking now. You know, everybody had uh, Suda, and they got through everything, and then they had to go to Shul Friday night. So uh, the Bacharim uh, enjoyed Purim the way they always do, and uh, some of them uh, were still dressed up in costume. It was a special minion. Babish brought. It was, uh, it was, it was going to be uh, doing, it was the chazan. People came from all around. And there was a large number of people who were still in costume. Boys. Uh, they weren't too young, but they weren't too old. I can't tell you exact years. If it was Masifta, Beis Medrash, I don't remember anymore. But I remember a number of them. And they were very high. And they were dressed in their still not Shabbos clothes, dressed in costume. And I, I don't know if you remember what it's like. I don't know if you've seen it. But we're talking about uh, how people try to daven after they've had a full Purim with a lot of drinking. It's very, very hard to do a Marv. Many people I know cannot daven Marv till 11, 12 o'clock at night. If they're lucky, they, get, they can get to it then. Maybe they can't get to a marv at all. A lot of people miss marv, or they certainly have difficulty finding a minion at the time that they're sober. But here it's Kabbalah's Shabbos. The Shabbos queen is coming. You understand what I'm saying? This is not, uh, 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 this is not just a question of a marv. And it's not just a question of, you know, I can find a minion at 12 o'clock at night. You're not going to find a minion at 12 o'clock at night anymore. Unless <laughs> you have a whole bunch of these people who couldn't, couldn't function. So they're there in shul. It's not a regular shul. It's a special minion held in the yeshiva. And Rav uh, brought this, doing the, it was, it's the chazan. And it was so disparaging when I saw these people I felt so sorry for them. They were 
communicating with themselves more than they were communicating with the sitter. A large part of the time they were just carousing with themselves and talking and 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 and, and, and responding to each other and making motions as if they were in the sky, and uh, they really weren't part of the davening, and it made a big rishim on me, and I say this year, I hope that everyone who's listening to me will make sure that in their immediate families, this won't occur. And it's a very simple solution, because the halacha is quite clear, that you're supposed to have the suda in the morning. You're not supposed to start it after chatzos. There's a heter to do it later on. There are minhagim to do it later on. Even then, not to start too late. Alpilacha, you could go, you know, pretty much through the afternoon, and and you can make if you reach uh, Shabbos, you paris mapa mekadesh, you you make a hefsek and you make kiddush and all that, and you'll daven marv afterwards or before or whatever, and you know you'll uh, you'll make a mixture over there. Um, Shiloh about the benching, so on. You had the mitzuda. It'll be a little complicated because you don't you can't have Shabbos and Purim together because they're not both. But okay. That's a halakha. But as far as, as as far as what's recommended in Shulchan Aruch, clear as a bell. You have to start the Suda in, in before Chatzos. Now, let me explain to you. A Suda, technically, you make hamotzi lechem and you have a kazayas of bread, so supposedly you started your Suda. But you did nothing in the morning that's dealing with this. What they want the purpose of this was to eat in the morning, to avoid going late into the afternoon. So the meal should really be served. You should be eating meat, you should be drinking your wine at earlier time, in the morning. I know it sounds not, that sounds, doesn't sound nice because what about our Mashalachmanis and Matansi Avyonim? I'll tell you how to do all of this in a second. But at least you have to realize that you need a cutoff. Now you can look in, the, in your luach, and it'll, it'll show you. You know, go to my zmanim, and they'll, they'll give you all the zmanim for your for your uh, zip code. But approximately twelve o'clock, a little before, a little afterwards, is your chatzos this year, and that's when you have to start. And if you're going to go in till four or five o'clock and just bench and run out, that's not a problem. But if you're shicker. If you did your drinking late, and because it's part of the su'uda, then where is your Kabbalah Shabbos? Did you have a brain to properly Kabbalah Shabbos? Did you say the words consecutively, not backwards and forwards, upside down? Did you say the words in the davening? Did you know who you're davening to? A big question, and that's why it should be done earlier. Now, I'll explain to you how to do uh, Purim, and uh, it's good for every year. You don't have to do it, but this is one way to do Purim. In the morning, first, first of all, Matanas Levyonim will be a hard one this year because there won't be so many people coming around collecting, hopefully. <laughs> but uh, you still have to have the mitzvah, so you have to have enough money. Some people say $5, some say $10, that per ani, which means $10 or $20 or something in that range for matonas levionim. And if you have different people in your family, you and your husband and wife and this and your children, it's okay, so each one of them should be giving at least $10 or hopefully $20 
to, uh, to whoever, whichever organization or individual or whatever. Because Matanus Levyonim means two. So you have to find two people, or the organization has to find two people. And tell the one for one, one for the other, and it says different organizations if you want, whatever you'll do. How do you do this? So in shul, invariably, there's somebody collecting matonas livionim to be given out that day. Doesn't matter which shul you go to, I'm sure there's somebody there, very often the rav or somebody else, have your money ready, hand it to him for the mitzvah right after the laning. When they lay in the when they lay in the Megillah on Friday morning, so what they do is they say the the Shechiyana would have to have in mind for all of the mitzvahs of the day, Shalach Manas Yonim, Surah Purim, and of course the Kriyas Hamagillah. So the Shechiyana was done then. The Kriyas Hamagillah you've got, you gave somebody tzedakah, take along as what I do, try to take along a few. Uh, 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 at least, at least the one shalach manas to give out and the appropriate way is that there should be a shaliach. It's not but it's the minig Israel that the shaliach should give the because it says shalach manas ishlereyu, so it should have some a messenger. So you tap somebody on the shoulder if you don't do it in Corona, you're, you're, you're elbow to elbow, or you just speak to him and you say, maybe could you perhaps give this to so and so. And then that's, uh, that's how you're going to go in Mikhaim, a mitzvah of Sholach Manas. And by the time you come home, then if you want to eat right away, you'll be Mikhaim with the mitzvahs. And uh, you don't have to worry about being shikha late in the day. You'll be able to do everything in the morning. What about all those people coming to visit? Okay, that's, that is a technical uh, problem. And you have to allow some time for meeting people. And of course, your own, uh, there may be Sholach Manas you have to give out in the house. So that you make another shliach to do that, or you yourself give it out a, a couple of them, and this is how you're going to celebrate the day. Now, say, but it's not nice. Really, should be up, up for everybody. You shouldn't be lying down. You shouldn't be out of it. This and that, okay. But this, it, nobody can be yotze, simchas Torah, or Purim 150%. Because it, these are days that there's so much to do you have to narrow it down, accomplish, know what you're going to accomplish, and do that. And yes, you're not going to be able to do everything completely, 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 because these days of Shminiyats, of, of Simchas Torah, and uh, Purim are very, very, very demanding days, and it's very hard to be, oh, you would say, absolutely every part. That's my little piece on Purim. Uh, maybe you remember from last year. In any event, I'm going on to a topic that is absolutely extraordinary. When I came across this this week, somebody sent it to me, I was amazed. You know, I grew up in the middle of what I'm talking about, and, and many of you did as well. And it's, it, it's, it's very interesting that this gentleman, who is very well known, Rabbi Ari Zivotovsky, Famous Rabbi Ari Zivotovsky, who writes on many uh, things about animals, in this case fish, a uh, man who is definitely knowledgeable, did a tremendous amount of research. He has a 40, uh, I think it's 49-page article called The Turning of the Tide, the Kashrut 
tail of the swordfish. Now, this is a very interesting topic, and I'll tell you why it's so interesting to me personally. When I grew up, you knew that not eating swordfish was a demarcation between orthodox and conservative. That's what we knew, sturgeon, but swordfish was one of those things. Now, swordfish is not something you find in the, all over the stores, you know. <laughs> swordfish is not such a common fish, but it was a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fish that uh, there was caught and was sold and was served in many restaurants. And uh, swordfish was, you know, in. I don't know if you can get it so easily anymore because this, I don't know how much they were available in general, but uh, swordfish was in when I was a kid growing up, and uh, the difference between orthodox and conservative was whether you ate swordfish or you ate uh, sturgeon or you didn't. There was a, a very, very big demarcation. And this r- Rabbi Tzvi Sivitovsky, what he did is he analyzed this, the history of this uh, issue in a beautiful, beautiful piece. I just became uh, aware of it through Rabbi Gordimer, who puts out a list of things to read every week. (laughs) I don't look at all of them, but if it looks interesting, I take a nibble. And this one, of course, no. Uh, uh, Did I get it from him? No, I got it from somebody else. I think I got it from somebody else. Um, Yeah, I got it from somebody else. If anybody needs this, I can't easily give it to you like this, but if you need to, you could contact us, and we will uh, we'll, we'll send you with the uh, PDF. But it's a it's a forty nine page document, and it's not such big print, so it's you know it's going to take you a while. Um, actually, it wasn't printed today, but it goes back a number of years. I think it was. It looks to here like it was from two thousand and eight, and I wasn't aware of it until now. What happened about it, what this whole story is as follows. Years ago, before I was born, the listing of swordfish as a kosher fish by the Agudas Harabonim of America, the most right-wing organization, the Agudas Harabonim of America, used to have a list of recommended fish, in, as I recall. And in, in, the, uh, in the 30s, they were already, they were still mentioning swordfish as a kosher fish, and probably much later too. And that's, that was what a lot of people felt, and we'll see in a second why. But this, this interest in swordfish went on for a long time, until the 1960s, as I'm going to show you in just a moment. Until three years ago, maybe it was less, two or three years ago, I thought this was a dead issue. I, I thought that just swordfish is strafe and that's it. A couple of years ago, I think it was two or three years ago, there was an article in the Jewish press. Again, I don't read everything. It's sent to me because it has the word kosher or kashrus on it. So I get all this stuff sent to me. So it, I, it was an article in the Jewish press written by, or it's a question and answer thing, by Rabbi Schachter, uh, Herschel Schachter, who's an eminent uh, scholar in Talmud Chacham, no question about it. And, uh, and uh, he works for the OU, and uh, he's, he, work, he teaches in Yeshiva uh, University, and he's uh, an outstanding Talmud Chacham. And he c- said, 
that swordfish is kosher. Now, when we grew up, Rabbi Tendler, Moshe Tendler, who was Rabbi Dr. Moshe Tendler with a PhD, he taught the world that swordfish is trafe. And it became the, uh, the difference between an Orthodox Jew and a conservative Jew. Because there was a conservative rab- rabbi, or call him what you will, he was ordained by the, uh, the conservative movement, uh, Rabbi Isaac Klein. And he wrote chuvas for the conservative movement. And he permitted that swordfish. And Rabbi Tenler went to town about it, researched it, and he felt strongly that the swordfish is not kosher. And that became the way we went, the way the whole world, Orthodox world, went. No swordfish. And this is a, a very, very interesting um, topic. But the interesting part of it is, and we'll start with this, even though we didn't touch it yet, there is a safer going back, it's called the Knesset Hagadoyla. His name was Reb Chaim ben Yisrael ben Venisti. And he's from the 1600 to 1603 to 1673. 350 years ago, he wrote in this famous sefer of his called Knesset Hagadoyla, which is a Sephardic poisic, he permits the fish with the sword. So that, a fish with a sword, that's a, right, sword fish. Well, maybe yes, and maybe no. He identified it as a fish with a sword. So I would say that's a swordfish, but maybe not. What Rabbi Zivotovsky does, he gives you a page. I, I flipped out when I saw this. This was just a beautiful thing. He sends a page to you, and he, he didn't, it's not his, it's from the uh, Univer- Bar-Ilan University from 2008. He has uh, a picture of four different fish. All of them have a long, 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 long uh, sword-like mouth. Long, long, long bill in the front, all the way out. And the four different fish. One is an Atlantic sailfish. One is a Mediterranean spear fish. One is the swordfish that we're talking about. And one is a needlefish. And if you look at these, of course, they, each one looks different, although two of them look very, very, maybe three of them look very similar. They are all different, but it's striking that there were four different fish. Now, I didn't uh, finish off my homework on this, I'm sorry, but when I was looking it up, I checked quickly, and of course that the swordfish is not considered to be a kosher fish anymore. Uh, But the other three, one of them, I forgot which one, is, I think is, is, is considered to be still a kosher fish. So it may be very well that that one, I forgot which one it is right now, uh, might actually be the Knesset Hagadola's fish with the sword. So it's interesting how things can get taken out of perspective. And from, from, for hundreds of years, people were probably eating 
the swordfish. Now, they do, is it wrong? Is it right? Well, I mean, from the point of view of uh, what we taught as kids, uh, it's wrong. I mean, because it's not, uh, you know, Orthodox people don't eat swordfish. Conservatives do, but Orthodox don't. Now, I have Rabbi Shachter saying it is a, it is a kosher fish. Um, Rabbi Tendler has never changed his opinion. And what is it all based upon? This article discusses what the whole history of it was. And what I like about Rabbi Zabotowski, I have to really, really praise the man, he doesn't take a halachic stand. He discusses what happened. He discusses the topic, but he doesn't make a decision. And he said many times in this article, I'm not deciding whether who was right and who was wrong, and uh, I'm not saying that Rabbi Tendler did anything wrong or did, made any mistakes here. It very well may be he's right. But he, he elaborates on the whole topic and discusses these, these things, which are fantastic. I'm going to give you a little taste of it. Um, not the swordfish, but the, the topic. I think you'll enjoy it very much. Now, Rabbi Tendler um, was... He, he, first of all, Rabbi uh, Zivotovsky explains why this was became a, a cause, the celebra, and why um, people went with Rabbi Tendler. In other words, why is Rabbi Tendler so successful? Many people wage wars and they aren't successful. Remember, they were using this in the Orthodox world up until Rabbi Tendler in the 1950s introduced this problem. Now, uh, Rabbi Tendler's successful campaign to, I'm reading a little bit from the book, from his article. Uh, Rabbi Tendler's uh, successful campaign to overturn was essentially a long-standing halachic tradition developed into protracted battle with both the Israeli chief rabbinate, with Rabbi Unterman and Rabbi Efrati, the head of the chief rabbinate's national kashmir division, and with the conservative movement. He took them all on. Given the fact that it was in the 1960s and 70s, this was the demarcation point of where we're going. If you're Orthodox, you listen to Rabbi Tendler. If you're not Orthodox, you don't, you know, whatever you do is fine. So that, that seems to be how things went. But he said there's, like, he, he, uh, Rabbi Zabotowski divided the whole discussion up into two different discussions. What happened in the 350 years from the Knesset Gedola down till the 1950s, and in the last 50 years from the 1950s till now, or approximate that years, okay. So uh, by Tendler was, he's, it was, uh, he, this, I'm going to give you this quote, this important quote. Rabbi Tendler was certainly sincere in his belief that swordfish is non-kosher, and he may indeed be correct. In other words, Rabbi Zivotevsky is not going there. You're not going to make an opinion. Now, scales is what the topic is all about because that's the difference between the kosher fish and non-kosher fish. Because if it has scales, it has fins. If it doesn't have fins, it, if, it, it, if it, does, it doesn't have scales, it's not kosher. So it's always really the scales is the whole thing. And, and most fish, and even the four fish that I was talking about before, they all have fins. But the scales is the problem. Now, there's, there's, there are four types of scales. In this article, he shows you pictures, also from Barbilan, of the of different types of scales. I've never seen this. It's extremely interesting. The four types of scales. 
And then he discusses the four types of scales. Well, I want to share with it to you, with it, with you. I want to share with you, with it. I want to share it with you because this is really, uh, again, the crux, the crux of it. The the pla- placoid sa- scales are on fish like sharks and rays. These are not kosher fish, and everybody seems to accept that. So the placoid scales, which are, I, I can't even describe, it looks like a, an arrowhead. That's what it looks like to me. And the, these scales are abs- they're, they're strong, and I don't think they come off at all. In any event, it's not considered to be kosher fish, sharks and rays. The next one is the cosmoid scales, which are found on lungfish and fossil fish, which he calls fossil fish. And there's the ganoid scales, which are on gars and sturgeon and paddlefish. Now, sturgeon is interesting because there are different types of sturgeon, and there were people who held that certain sturgeon was kosher. But again, that's one of the fish that we don't eat at all. And, uh, and so these certain, out of the different types of scales, we're not eating all the scales. So just because it has scales doesn't mean that it's going to be considered kosher. The, uh, the fourth one is the cycloid and the, I can't even pronounce it, tenoid scales. And this is on a, a, a wide variety of bony fishes. And this is a, a more normal kind of a scale that you'd see on the fish that you're, that you're eating. And it's very interesting. It looks like a seashell. You know, if you see it in the picture that he, that he gave us. In general, the scales are overlapping each other, and they could be uprooted. That's very, very crucial. And Rabbi Zivotovsky discusses the, the, all the svarim that discuss about scales, whether it's important or not that they be removed easily by, by you know, with just scraping it by your hand or with a knife, that they should be able to come off. It seems that many of the poiskims require that, and that seems to be very much of the demarcation. The real problem with the swordfish was that the adult fish did not have scales. The junior fish, the younger sort of fish, did. And, the, the, and uh, so they lost the scales. So is that considered to be enough that it's, uh, that it's called scales on the swordfish, plus the fact that they were not easily removed at all? And that's sort of the main difference. Today, we teach that you have to be able to remove the scales. You have to find the scales on there, remove the scales. And Pialacha, very interesting, by the way, if you share with you a little piece of kashrus information hot off the press, the, the badats of the Eidach Haredes, this is an extraordinary thing I'm telling you now. This is, this is worth calling in, listening just for this one minute. The, but the badats of the Eidach Haredes just gave out that they said, we can't get into the Far East. We can't get there. Now, they're in Israel, which is a lot closer than here. They can't get into the Far East enough to watch that the fish that go into the, that the, the, the we're packing under our name, we can't see each one of the fish. And appeal luckily, we feel you have to see each one of the fish. And we can't. So they made up a new deal. The tilapia that they're certifying will now come with little pieces of skin on the back. 
which would either have scales or potentially could have scales, and it's quite clear from the from the material you'll see that that there were scales there, which according to Allah seems to be enough. And there'll be a simon on there that it's their hashkocha. Uh, but you cannot use tilapia with the bedats of the edacharedis unless it has this little piece of patch of uh, on the back, little patch of of skin. Now, what's interesting is, I don't know if you know this, but that, that already is is amazing because that's admitting that. COVID is, is, is stopping them from doing everything. And, and I'll tell you, the conscious organizations are telling me that, they, that it's been very difficult for them, and they have to drop certain things, and they have to, and I'm afraid they've probably dropped the standards a little bit, but uh, hopefully things will straighten out a little bit. Very interesting, also saw this, this is also worth calling, listening to for this minute. It seems that the, that the hashkachas are now coming out that you can't rely totally and give a hashkocha totally without visiting, just to rely on what they call these um, Zoom uh, inspections where the, the person who's in the plant, the goy, is holding up his cell phone and moving it around. Please take me into this room. And he takes you to that room and you see it on Zoom. And then he takes you over here and you see it on your Zoom. And you're, you're seeing it live and you're, you know it's real because he's responding in that second and doing just what you want. So, yeah, you probably believe it's all happening, but you're not seeing the plant. You don't know what else is going on in the plant. You ask for this, you ask for that. I give you those rooms, but you didn't ask for that room. You didn't, ask, you didn't pass by and say, what's in that room over there? So they decided in the ACO that if anybody is abusing this, and relying on that totally with this new methodology, they're going to be dropped from ACO, from the Association of Conscious Organizations. So something must have occurred here, and it's not publicized, but something must have occurred that made them aware that things aren't all so great. So People should be aware of this problem and understand that we need to have the highest quality during this COVID, because the, the, the more serious the hashkocha, the more careful they are about these things. And it's not a game anymore because of, the, because of, the, uh, of, this, of this, these very issues that so much has changed and so limited in, in getting into these places. All right, let me just go on to this topic because I don't want to miss it. So they're talking about taking out the scales. So we, we have... The, the basic way that we say today is that you should be able to remove the scales yourself. They can be removed, then they look like real scales, they can be removed, then that's scales, and then the fish is a kosher-type fish. Now, that part of it being easily removed, as I said, not in all of the, of the svarim, but that is considered to be the basic requirement. And this is one of the things that Rabbi Tendler used in terms of considering the, uh, the swordfish as not kosher. It says that even if, uh, in the note of Yehuda says that even if soaking in hot water is needed, 
to loosen the scales, some poskim said that that's acceptable. It's like that's considered peelable, even if you need to soak it to be able to remove it. Now the uh, when when uh, when I, when Rabbi Klein wrote his tshuva for the conservative movement, and Rabbi Tenler wrote his tshuva for the Orthodox world, they went to the same doctor, uh, some some scientist, a uh, doctor Colette. And that's been the source of the information, of uh, some of the information that they had. And Rabbi Tenle asked Dr. Colette, does the scale of the juvenile swordfish, which does have scales, resemble the scale of a whitefish or a carp, those are kosher fish, with respect to its relatively loose attachment to the underlying integument? In other words, can you scrape it off? Dr. Colette said, uh, no, it's not like, uh, it's not easily removed. And then now we have two things that we're not having it on all of the fish, only them in the juvenile, but not when they're the, the adult version. And secondly, they're not considered to be similar to the type of scale that, the, that was on the acceptably kosher fish. And the basis of this, that's basically where Rabbi Tendler went into it and made a, a, a stand and, and said, no, it's not a kosher fish. And he's going against all of orthodoxy at that given time, where it was listed as a kosher fish by the Hizaktas Rabbonim. The previous generation was all eating it. Everybody was eating it until Rabbi Tendler did his work. And at that point, he changed everybody who will call themselves Orthodox. A complete change. Stop. No more. So it's not just, it's not just strawberries with Rabbi Wickler, right? It goes back to Rabbi Tenler. Rabbi Tenler also made trouble for people because he didn't accept the OU's, um, the, OU's pro, uh, the OU's standard for tuna fish. He held that you have to have check every fish, and that's and he didn't eat uh, tuna fish for years until Duggan came out. So yes, this is he created a certain sin. By the way, I, I don't know if you know much about Rabbi Tendler, but he was a, a, a precursor of mine. I mean, uh, I knew about his work, and I had seen things printed up that he was involved in, and he was doing the kind of work that I ultimately tried to do. And to uh, stay on top of the Kashra situation, and yes, uh, uh, he was definitely a, 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 a. I don't know if I've talked to him at that time, but uh, definitely uh, he, he gave me a certain amount of uh, guidance and chizuk from seeing what he came out with, and of course the debetzina rub also what he did. That have, those two things had profound effect on my starting into this little area. This is Rabbi Tenler's original article, if you want to look it up. It's the halachic status of the swordfish to remove a stumbling block, a tshuva with an epilogue. It was published in the Jewish Observer in 1968, pages 13 to 17. It was reprinted in Gesher, and again in Pardis Rimonim, and, um, and he put out this booklet, which is what I had seen. It's called A Guide to Kashrut. It was back from the 1980s, 
Um, and he, he had maybe six, seven editions of this thing, but on and on and on, always working. And that's why, that's what I had seen, and that's what, uh, you know, I didn't realize it at that time, but, but obviously that was, uh, you know, part of my uh, uh, interest in, 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 in Kashrus from, from him. Uh, actually, um, he started it in the 70s, I believe, or 60s, but uh, if the last one that they mentioned here, the fifth edition, because there may be more editions, was in 1981, and Conscious Magazine started in 1980. But I had seen his work before. And anyway, it, it's, a, it's a fantastic uh, article this Rabbi Zivotovsky has, and uh, it's, it, he, he analyzes, uh, you know, how... Uh, Rabbi Tendler made the decision, you know, and uh, and he raises some questions that would make life a little interesting. And of course, we don't know what the sword is, but what what he did in Rabbi Zivotovsky, and I really want to just mention this one point, is that he pointed out to us that this was a huge success. What was it? What was it that made the world accept Rabbi Moshe Tendler? Well, first of all, let's go back one step. And here I'm going to give you a little quick quote from the Jewish Observer from 1968. This is from Rabbi Tendler explaining how he came up with this uh, uh, idea of the swordfish. I discussed the, the presented facts with my great teachers, Ramosha Feinstein Schlitter, at that time he was alive, and Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was his father-in-law and Rav Yosef Dov Salvechik from Yeshiva University, Shlita, and they concur with my decision that on the basis of the evidence presented, the swordfish, and he spells it out here in the, in the Latin form, is a non-kosher fish. And that's it, 1968. You know, everybody knew it, and everybody was staying away from it. So why did he? Why was he so successful? So Rabbi Zivotelsky puts forth two reasons why he was so successful. First of all, he says at that time, in the fifties, sixties, orthodoxy was coming back. Because if you, I don't know what you know about history, but at a certain point, it looked like conservative Judaism would be the center of Judaism, and. Orthodoxy was going to sort of fall off and because it was old world. Uh, people were speaking Yiddish, and they didn't, uh, they didn't dress the same way. They weren't wearing short jackets, and they weren't uh, getting college educated. And they were, you know, like, you know, uh, backwards. And therefore, orthodoxy was, was the thing of the past, but conservative would come, become the wave of the future. That was what many people had. And interestingly enough, most of the rabbis in the conservative synagogues were Orthodox rabbis. And that's the reason they went in there, because that's the future. And they tried to, to do it the best they could. Some, some kept Orthodoxy on a private basis, although they prayed in the men and women together. And some you know, threw in the towel and became conservative, even though their whole background was orthodox. In any event, that's history. But Rabbi Tendler, at that time, it was a special time. There was a tremendous growth in respect for orthodoxy. It was coming back. 
because people were becoming uh, educated. The, 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 the uh, Orthodox Jew was not speaking only Yiddish and not participating in the world. He was getting involved. He was getting educated. And that made a difference. And the science part played an important role. This is what Zivotovsky said. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's an interesting concept. He said the OK was called OK Laboratories because he wanted to put forth the idea of laboratory. And they, you know, in the chemistry, and, the, and this kind of thing was entering into the kosher world. And people got um, respect. They, first of all, there was hope. They had a sense that orthodoxy was successfully encountering the dawning scientific age. And they felt it's going to get there. And secondly, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's son-in-law was Rabbi Tendler, who was himself a bona fide scientist with a PhD. That, and therefore, he became sort of like a, a star. It's true. That's how he was viewed, because he had a lot. I'm, I want to tell you, I don't know if you know it, Rabbi Tendler, uh, at that time, was working on a cure for cancer. It was called Rafuin. It didn't make it all the way to the top. I don't know what actually happened with it. I didn't follow it up. But yes, he was working on a cure for cancer back in the 1960s, I think. So uh, he, was, he, he was definitely uh, an important part. By the way, later on, Rabbi Tendler became uh, a, one of the major people in the, the Kosher Law Enforcement Board for uh, New York State, which was major because they were dealing with a lot of uh, violations of kosher law. And he was like the head or one of the people on the rabbinic uh, the board. I'm not sure if he was on the regular board or just the rabbinic board. In any event, he was a major player and had much impact into how they did their, their, uh, their, their challenges to people who were breaking the law. I don't want to go into it now because we don't have time, but he was, uh, he was uh, limiting them in terms of how they dealt with uh, parv and dairy based upon halacha. Now, this, so the two reasons why Rabbi Tendler was so successful was this, uh, the fact that, uh, that he was a, a son-in-law of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein and that he was a scientist and that and, and maybe in the United States, I'm, uh, I'm going to read uh, a little bit, a line here or so. He said that uh, Rabbi Zivotovsky says, secondly, and possibly more importantly, in the United States, the fight took on an added twist, one that may have greatly aided Rabbi Tendler's crusade. The kosher status of swordfish became a major point of contention between orthodox and conservative movements. This led to a closing of the ranks among the Orthodox, such that very quickly there were no Orthodox rabbis in the United States who were willing to permit swordfish because they didn't want to be uh, considered to be like conservatives. So therefore, everything changed. And that's a very interesting uh, observation that Rabbi Zatovsky has. And of course, he put forth a very interesting discussion about whether or not the swordfish that the Knesset Gadola, the, the, the fish with a sword that the Knesset Gadola puts forth, whether it is properly the swordfish or it's one of these other three, the needlefish, the spearfish, or the sailfish. Um, maybe something else. I'm not saying necessarily the Knesset Gadola was the only name 
you know, the game in town. Maybe he's right or wrong. But in any event, he did permit a fish with a sword. And I think that was a, a fantastic presentation by Rabbi Tzvi Zivotovsky. And if you need it, you can contact us. We can be reached at 718-336-8544 or 732-534-9363. But if you want to get this, just send us an email to kashrus at aol.com, K-A-S-H-R-U-S at aol.com. I want, to, I want to tell you that we're sending out um, next day or so the, the Pesach issue. We're printing it, and it's going, to be, it's going to be mailed out next week. So if anybody wants to get the uh, subscription to the Conscious Magazine or you want to get the Pesach issue, uh, it's a fantastic issue, Baruch Hashem, uh, you can do that by contacting us at the, those numbers I just gave you, 718-336-8544, or Kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S at AOL.com. Uh, I would mention the website, but right now the order page is not working, so we have to wait till that gets fixed. Uh, in any event, if you'd like to get uh, some of the things that we put out, which is the kosher supervision guide, the kosher travel guide, the Pesach guide. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> it's amazing what we have in this particular issue. I, I, I stuffed in um, more than the normal because we were planning to do a different issue, and we, we got a little bit late, and I, I said, no, we have to do Pesach. So we're doing Pesach, so we put a lot of material in, additional material, some beautiful articles went in. Uh, it's a shame I couldn't get them into the next issue, but I, I figured we got to get it in now, and uh, it's 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 really worth it. Great, a great, great issue, Baruch Hashem. So until next week, this is your host Rabbi Yosef Weckler, wishing you a wonderful week and a a Purim Sameach, and hopefully we'll be starting soon on uh, working on on Pesach, and I'm going to be having on. It could be as early as next week. I'm not sure. We're going to be having on Rabbi Nochum Rabinowitz, who we have every year discussing the latest things for Pesach. Uh, so please uh, keep, keep in contact with us because we'll be mentioning many things about Pesach in the next few weeks. Have a wonderful uh, Purim and uh, a wonderful week until, until I speak to you next week.